Hello. Hi. And welcome to more Infinite Cast. Wow. The podcast. Uh, we did not end up doing uh, two days back to back, but this is the same weekend as last weekend's Infinite je- Infinite but Cast. But it's next weekend. But you're for hearing us. it next weekend. Wow. Think about that. Wow. How time moves. Yeah. Yeah, it moves in mysterious ways. Life is a mystery. Time moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> you move in mysterious ways. Is that still your Instagram bio? It might be. <laughs> I don't know. That's I don't. My, that's my best work. Yes. I simply can't. I gotta retire. Uh. Anyway, we um, we still both have COVID, but still feel better. Yes. 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 <laughs> that's a, that's a personal update from us. Yeah. What do you think? Shall, shall we, we get, shall we dive in? Yeah. Dive directly in? All right. Back let's to do a it. short section with our new uh, system of uh, Steeply and Wrath where you are reading Steeply. I'm trying to remember my Steeply voice. Uh, pre-dawn, 1 May, YDAU, outcropping northwest of Tucson, Arizona, USA, still. Uh, M. Hugh Steeply spoke quietly after a prolonged silence of both operatives alone with their thoughts upon this mountain. Steeply faced still out, standing on the outcropping's lip, bare arms around him for some warmth, his dresses soiled back to Morath. Around the bonfire, far out below the desert floor, rotated a ring of smaller and palsied fires, persons carrying torches or fires. Do you ever think of viewing it? Morath did not reply. It was not impossible that the young persons carrying the torches were dancing. Whether or not the AFR ever even recover this alleged master copy from Duplessis. Oh! It's from the... It's They're, they're suggesting that the cartridge is from the burglary. The burglary itself. Itself. Jesus, how did I not know that? Okay. <laughs> or at least that's what they think that's it's from. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's where it's from. Okay, yes, sure. Ah. Whether or not the AFR ever even recovers this master, this alleged master copy from the Duplessis burglary... Steeply said quietly... Still, you guys have a read-only copy, at least one. You have told us, no? Yes. Nobody has this mysterious master, but we've all got read-onlys. The anti-O-N-A-N cells have at least one read-only, we're pretty sure. Morath said, M. he tells Fortier he thinks the CPCP of Alberta do not have any copy. Fuck the Albertans. Steeply said. Who's worried about the Albertans? The Albertans' idea of a blow to the U.S. plexus is they blow up a rangeland in Montana. They're wackos. I have not been tempted, Morath said. Steeply's sound appeared as if he did not hear. We have more than one. Copies. Sure, we can assume your boys know this. Morath dryly laughed. Confiscated from razzles of Berkeley, Boston. But who can know what is on them? Who can study the entertainment while detached? Steeply's scratch on the arm had become overnight puffed, and there were crosshatches of his scratching. But just between us two, though, tet to tet, <laughs> you've never been s- even slightly tempted? I mean, personally. You, the person. Wife's condition be damned. Kids be damned. Just for a second. Slip into whatever you guys keep it. Slip, it, slip into wherever you guys keep it and load it, and have a quick look to see with all the fuss, the irresistible pull of the thing. He pivoted on one heel and looked and cocked his head in a way of cynicism that seemed to Morath consummately USA. Morath coughed softly into his fist. His own dead father's Kenbeck pacemaker, it had been damaged accidentally by a videophonic pulse of waves. This from a telephone call from the telephone company, a video call advertising the videophony. M. Morath had picked up the ringing telephone, the videophonic pulse, it had come. M. Morath had fallen, still holding a telephone. Remy had never been instructed to answer first, to check. The advertisement, which was recorded, played its audible portion out upon the floor beside his father's ear, audible between Morath's mother's cries. Steeply raised and lowered himself on his shoe's toes. Us, Rod the God Tynes from Tom Tom Flatto's I.O. Boy... (laughs) (laughs) Us, Rod the God Tynes, got Tom Flatto's I.O. boys running tests around the clock, 24-7. Uh, Flatto, Thomas M., BSS Director of Input-slash-Output Testing, resident of Falls Church's community, a widower with three children, one child with cystic fibrosis. Funny, as an impacted follicle, Remy. 
Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Funny is an impacted follicle, Remy. And no, and no doubt the insurgent cells are all each doing work of your own. You guys with your own Dr. Brulet or whomever. <laughs> Dr. Brule. Dr. Brule. Uh, or whomever trying to find out uh, what the entertainment's appeal could be without sacrificing any of your own. Steeply again turned. He did this for emphasis. Or maybe you're willing, willingly sacrificing your own, yes? Willing volunteers in chairs. Sacrificing self for the greater and all that. By adult choice and all that. Just for the sake of causing us harm. Wouldn't even want to think about how the AFR is conducting tests of the thing. C'est ça. But not so much for content. Steeply said. Input-output's exhaustive testing. Flatto's got them working on conditions and environments for possible non-lethal viewing. Certain departments in Virginia. The developing theory is their holography. The Samuse dot? The filmmaker had been a cutting-edge optics man. Holography. Diffraction. He'd used holography a couple times before, and in the context of a kind of filmed assault on the viewers. He was of the hostile school or some (laughs) such shit. Also a maker of reflecting panels for thermal weapons and an important annulateur also and a master of the capital from opticals before hostility in film, Morath said. Steeply embraced himself. Tom Flatto's personal theory is the appeal's got something to do with density, the visual compulsion. Theories that with a really sophisticated piece of holography, you get the neural density of an actual stage play without losing the selective realism of the viewer screen. That the density plus the realism might be too much to take. Dick Desai in data production wants to go in with algol and see if there are Fourier <laughs> equations in the root codes algol, which would cert- which would signify hollow grammatical activity going on. M. Fortier finds the theories of content irrelevant. Deeply cocked his head sometimes in a way that was both feminine and bird-like. <laughs> he did this most often during silences. Also, he again removed something small from his painted lip. Also, he spoke with more feminine inflection. Morath committed all of this to his memories. Might have to start speaking with more feminine inflection. More feminine inflection. I don't know what that means, though. I'll try next time. Like, just like a vocal, like, <laughs> just vocal fry. I don't think that that's what uh, Foster Wallace would have been imagining as, as feminine inflection, but... Um, that's what, Funny, but that's what it would mean now. Follicle Remy, Emma Fortier uh, finds the theories of content. <laughs> ir- oh, that's a Morath line, anyway. Uh, thank, thank you, sir. Uh, you're welcome. I wonder if M Fortier uh, is a reference to Charles Fortier, the um, purveyor of weird magazines uh, in oh. America, a mid-century chronicler of everything um, hyper weird from. Um, I believe from cryptids to UFO sightings to uh, paraphenomenon of all kinds in in a long-running magazine. Mm. I I must assume that Fortier, that uh, that Foster Wallace would be uh, familiar with Fortier. Yeah. All right, let's move on to a different time and a different place. Okay, great. It's winter. It's BS 1963, and we're in Sepulveda, California. I remember, (laughs) which immediately takes us to end note. 208 (laughs) from okay from chapter 16 the awakening of my interest in annular systems in the chill of inspiration spontaneous reminiscences by 17 pioneers of dt cycle lithiumized annular fusion uh edited by prof uh dr gunther sperber institute for neutronen physique and react reactor technique confession centrums karlruhe karlsruhe urg Available in English and ferociously expensive hardcover only. Copyright YTMP from Springer Verlag, Fien, New York. (laughs) I remember, back to the text, I remember I was eating lunch and reading something dull by Bazin when my father came into the kitchen and made himself a tomato juice beverage and said that as soon as I was finished, he and my mother needed my help in their bedroom. My father had spent the morning at the commercial studio and was still in all white with his wig with its rigid white parted hair and hadn't yet removed the television makeup that gave his real face an orange cast in daylight. I hurried up and finished and rinsed my dishes in the sink and proceeded down the hall to the master bedroom. My mother and father were both in there. The master bedroom's valence curtains and the heavy light-proof curtain behind them were all slid back, the Venetian blinds up, 
and the daylight was very bright in the room, the decor of which was white and blue and powder blue. My father was bent over my parents' large bed, which was stripped of bedding all the way down to the mattress protector. He was bent over, pushing down on the bed's mattress with the heels of his hands. The bed's sheets and pillows and a powder blue coverlet were all in a pile on the carpet next to the bed. Then my father handed me his tumbler of tomato juice to hold for him and got all the way on top of the bed and knelt on it, pressing down vigorously on the mattress with his hands, putting all his weight into it. He bore down hard on one area of the mattress, then let up and pivoted slightly on his knees and bore down with equal vigor on a different area of the mattress. He did this all over the bed, sometimes actually walking around on the mattress on his knees to get at different areas of the mattress, then bearing down on them. I remember thinking the bearing down action looked very much like emergency compression of a heart patient's chest. I remember my father's tomato juice had grains of pepperish material floating on the surface. My mother was standing at the bedroom window, smoking a long cigarette and looking at the lawn, which I had watered before I ate lunch. The uncovered window faced south. The room blazed with sunlight. Is this the first first-person uh, chapter in this book? Well, the first cha- uh, passage ever was Hal in first person, just unable to communicate with anybody. Okay. Um, but yes, this this is rare. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, of course, uh, this is Hal's. This is Hal's daddy. This is James. Uh, this is uh, this is the first person from James. Yes. Uh, as you, I don't know if you recall his father being a failed tennis guy with ruined knees who yes. was trying one last uh, stab at acting. Yes. Eureka, my father said, pressing down several times on one particular spot. I asked whether I could ask what was going on. Goddamn bed squeaks, he said. He stayed on his knees over the one particular spot, bearing down on it repeatedly. There was now a squeaking sound from the mattress when he bore down on the spot. My father looked up and over at my mother next to the bedroom window. Do you or do you not hear that, he said, bearing down and letting up. My mother tapped her long cigarette into a shallow ashtray she held in her other hand. She watched my father press down on the squeaking spot. Sweat was running in orange, uh, dark orange lines down my father's face from under his rigid white professional wig. My father served for two years as the man from GLAD representing what was then the Glad Flaccid Plastic Receptacle Co. of Zanesville, Ohio, via a California-based advertising agency. The tunic, tight trousers, and boots the agency made him wear were also white. My father pivoted on his knees and swung his body around and got off the mattress and put his hand at the small of his back and straightened up, continuing to look at the mattress. This miserable, cock-sucking bed your mother felt she needed to hang on to and bring with us out here for, quote, sentimental value has started squeaking, my father said. His saying your mother indicated that he was addressing himself to me. He held his hand out for his tumbler of tomato juice without having to look at me. He stared darkly down at the bed. It's driving us fucking nuts. My mother balanced her cigarette in her shallow ashtray and laid the ashtray on the windowsill and bent over from the foot of the bed and bore down on the spot my father had isolated, and it squeaked again. And at night, this one spot here we've isolated and identified seems to spread and metastasate until the whole goddamn bed's replete with squeaks. He drank some of his tomato juice. Areas that gibber and squeak, my father said, until we both feel as if we're being eaten by rats. He felt along the line of his jaw. Boiling hordes of gibbering, squeaking, ravenous, rapacious rats, he said, almost trembling with irritation. I looked down at the mattress, at my mother's hands, which tended to flake in dry climates. She carried a small bottle of moisturizing lotion at all times. My father said, and I have personally had it with the aggravation. He blotted his forehead on his white sleeve. I reminded my father that he'd mentioned needing my help with something. At that age, I was already taller than both my parents. My mother was taller than my father, even in his boots, but much of her height was in her legs. My father's body was denser and more substantial. My mother came around to my father's side of the bed and picked the bedding up off the floor. She started folding the sheets very precisely, using both arms and her chin. She stacked the folded bedding neatly on top of her dresser, which I remember was white lacquer. My father looked at me. (coughs) Sorry. What we need to do here, Jim, is take the mattress and box spring off the bed frame under here, my father said, and expose the frame. He took time out to explain that the bed's bottom mattress was hard-framed and known uniformly as a box spring. I was looking at my sneakers and making my feet alternately pigeon-toed and then penguin-toed on the bedroom's blue carpet. My father drank some of his tomato juice and looked down at the edge of the bed's metal frame and felt along the outline of his jaw, 
where his commercial studio makeup ended abruptly at the turtleneck collar of his white commercial tunic. The frame on this bed is old, he told me. It's probably older than you are. Right now I'm thinking that things, bolts, have maybe started coming loose and that's what's gibbering and squeaking at night. He finished his tomato juice and held the glass out for me to take and put somewhere. So we want to move all this top crap out of the way entirely, he gestured with one arm, entirely out of the way, get it out of the room, and expose the frame and see if we don't maybe just need to tighten up the bolts. I certainly um, sympathize with the uh, being driven insane by a bed squeak. Of course. I wasn't sure where to put my father's empty glass, which had juice residue and grains of pepper along the inside's sides. I poked at the mattress and box spring a little with my foot. Are you sure it isn't just the mattress, I said? The bed's frame's bolts struck me as a rather exotic first-order explanation for the squeaking. Mm, no, correct. My bed, f- bed frame bolts are, are often the, the, mm. the squeak causers. I, I didn't realize that you were such a squeak connoisseur. I, I am. I mean, that, that's what that, it's, it's the, you're hearing the rubbing of metal against metal, so you need to tighten up all those bolts. Uh-huh. My father gestured broadly. Synchronicity surrounds me. Conquered, he said. Because, uh, con- concord? Conquered? Uh, because that's what your mother thinks it is also. My mother was using both hands to take the blue pillowcases off all five of their pillows, again using her chin as a clamp. The pillows were all the overplump polyester fiberfill kind because of my father's allergies. Great minds think alike, my father said. Neither of my parents had any interest in hard science, though a great uncle had accidentally electrocuted himself with a field series generator he was seeking to patent. (laughs) My mother stacked the pillows on top of the neatly folded bedding on her dresser. She had to get up on her tiptoes to put the folded pillowcases on top of the pillows. I had started to move to help her, but I couldn't decide where to put the empty tomato juice glass. But you just want to hope it isn't the mattress, father said, or the box spring. My mother sat down on the foot of the bed and got out another long cigarette and lit it. She carried a little leatherette snap case for both her cigarettes and her lighter. My father said, because a new frame, even if we can't get the bolts squared away on this one and I have to get a new one, a new frame, it wouldn't be too bad, see? Even top-shelf bed frames aren't that expensive, but new mattresses are outrageously expensive, he looked at my mother, and I mean fucking outrageous. He looked down at the back of my mother's head, and we bought a new box spring for this sad excuse for a bed not five years ago. He, this is very a mid-century play. Yes, it is. He was... Li- uh, all, father in the sixties is upset. <laughs> yes, all and drinking. All lauded uh, mid-century plays are uh, father in the sixties is upset. Daddy's mad. Uh, middle-class family wishes they were slightly richer. <laughs> That's like uh, son a, made a mistake. Son made a mistake. Son yes. made a big mistake. Um. Um. Yes. These are the the plots of of all of our lauded all plays. mid-century plays, and they all suck. Yeah. <laughs> woman is a whore or people think woman, <laughs> woman is, is a whore, whore yes uh he was looking down at the back of my mother's head as if he wanted to confirm that she was listening my mother had crossed her legs and was looking with a certain concentration either at or out the master bedroom window our home's whole subdivision was spread along a severe hillside which sun valley which meant that this a view from my parents bedroom on the first floor was of just sky and sun and a foreshortened declivity of lawn the lawn sloped at an average angle of 55 degrees and had to be mowed horizontally. <laughs> <laughs> None of the subdivision's lawns had trees yet. Of course, that was during a seldom-discussed point in time when your mother had to assume the burden of assuming responsibility for finances in the household, my father said. He was now perspiring very heavily, but still had his white professional toupee on and still looked at my mother. My father acted throughout our time in California as both symbol and spokesman for the Glad FPR Co.'s individual sandwich bag division. He was the first of two actors to portray the man from Glad. He was inserted several times a month in a mock-up of a car interior where he would be filmed in a tight trans windshield shot receiving an emergency radio summons to some household that was having a portable food storage problem. He was then inserted opposite an actress in a generic kitchen interior set where he would explain how a particular species of Glad sandwich bag was precisely what the doctor ordered for the particular portable food storage problem at issue. Is this supposed to be like a man from Uncle parody? I guess. In his vaguely medical uniform of all white, he carried an air of authority and great evident conviction and earned what I always gathered was an impressive salary for those times and received, for the first time in his career, fan mail 
some of which bordered on the disturbing, <laughs> which he sometimes liked to read out loud at night in the living room, loudly and dramatically, sitting up with a nightcap and fan mail long after my mother and I had gone to bed. I asked whether I could excuse myself for a moment to take my father's empty tomato juice glass out to the kitchen sink. I was worried that the residue along the inside sides of the tubbler would harden into the kind of precipitate that would be hard to wash off. For Christ's sake, Jim, just put the thing down, my father said. I put the tumbler down on the bedroom carpet over next to the base of my mother's dresser, pressing down to create a kind of circular receptacle for it in the carpet. My mother stood up and went back over by the bedroom window with her ashtray. We could tell she was getting out of our way. My father cracked his knuckles and studied the path between the bed and the bedroom door. I said I understood my part here to be to help my father move the mattress and box spring off the suspect bed frame and well out of the way. My father cracked his knuckles and replied that I was becoming almost frighteningly quick and perceptive. He went around between the foot of the bed and my mother at the window. He said, I want to, let's just stack it all out in the hall to get it the hell out of here and give us some room to maneuver. Right, I said. My father and I were now on opposite sides of my parents' bed. My father rubbed his hands together and bent and worked his hands between the mattress and box spring and began to lift the mattress up from his side of the bed. When his side of the mattress had risen to the height of his shoulders, he somehow inverted his hands and began pushing his side up rather than lifting it. The top of his wig disappeared behind the rising mattress, and his side rose in an arc to almost the height of the white ceiling, exceeded 90 degrees, toppled over, and began to fall over toward me. The mattress's overall movement was like the crest of a breaking wave, I remember. I spread my arms and took the impact of the mattress with my chest and face, supporting the angled mattress with my chest, outspread arms, and face. All I could see was an extreme close-up of the woodland floral pattern of the mattress protector. The mattress, a Simmons beauty rest whose tag said it could not by law be removed, now formed the hypotenuse of a right dihedral triangle whose legs were myself and the bed's box spring. I remember visualizing and considering this triangle. My legs were trembling under the mattress's canted weight. My father exhorted me to hold and support the mattress. The respectively sharp plastic and meaty human smells of the mattress and protector were very distinct because my nose was mashed up against them. My father came around to my side of the bed and together we pushed the mattress back up until it stood up at 90 degrees again. We edged carefully apart and each took one end of the upright mattress and began jockeying it off the bed and out the bedroom door <laughs> into the uncarpeted hallway. Moving mattresses is indeed awkward. It's one of the most awkward things a human yeah. can it's do. It's like this very labored description of moving a mattress, of course. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yes, yes. This was a king-size Simmons Beautyrest mattress. It was massive but had very little structural integrity. It kept curving and curling and wobbling. My father exhorted both me and the mattress. It was flaccid and floppy as we tried to jockey it. <laughs> my father had an especially hard time with his half of the mattress's upright weight because of an old competitive tennis in injury. Mm -hmm. While we were jockeying it on its side off the bed, part of the mattress on my father's end slipped and flopped over and down onto a pair of steel reading lamps, adjustable cubes of brushed steel attached by toggle bolts to the white wall over the head of the bed. The lamps took a solid hit from the mattress and one cube was rotated all the way around on its toggle so that its open side and bulb now pointed at the ceiling. The joint and toggle made a painful squeaking sound as the cube was wrenched around upward. This was also when I became aware that even the reading lamps were on in the daylight room because of a faint square of direct lamplight. Its four sides, rendered slightly concave by the distortion of projection, appeared on the white ceiling above the skewed cube. But the lamps didn't fall off. They remained attached to the wall. God damn it to hell, my father said as he regained control of his end of the mattress. My father also said, fucking son of a when the mattress's thickness made it difficult for him to squeeze through the doorway, still holding his end. In time, we were able to get my parents' mattress, giant mattress out in the narrow hallway that ran between the master bedroom and the kitchen. I could hear another terrible squeak from the bedroom as my mother tried to realign the reading lamp whose cube had been inverted. Drops of sweat were falling from my father's face onto his side of the mattress, darkening part of the protector's fabric. My father and I tried to lean the mattress at a slight supporting angle, against one wall of the hallway, but because the floor of the hallway was uncarpeted and didn't provide sufficient resistance, the mattress wouldn't stay upright. Its bottom edge slid out from the wall all the way across the width of the hallway until it met the baseboard of the opposite wall, and the upright mattress's top edge slid down the wall until the whole mattress sagged at an extremely concave, slumped angle, 
A dry section of the woodland floral mattress protector stretched drum tight over the slumped crease and the springs possibly damaged by the deforming concavity. This is a bizarrely familiar experience that I've never heard uh, articulated yes. in quite so tough a mattress, way. the thing that we sleep on, is both large and unwieldy. Yeah, it is. It's, it's not just a, a regular square. It's a chaotic square. It is a chaotic square. Uh, v- very hard to lean on things. Yes. It's, yeah, it's, it's the impossible. I remember that. I know everyone says that the first test of a couple's relationship is going to Ikea, but I actually think it was when we were moving my mattress downstairs and we were moving <laughs> in together, which I think we did fine. Yes. Um, David Foster Wallace's Consider the Mattress. Uh, also, this appears to be a ground floor bedroom, and I was on the third floor walk-up. So, ha. Where are we? Uh, my father looked at the canted concave mattress sagging across the width of the hall and moved one end of it a little with the toe of his boot and looked at me and said, fuck it. <laughs> my bow tie was rumpled and at an angle. It's bow tie? Yeah, he's a little bow tie wearing dork. My father had to walk unsteadily across the mattress in his white boots to get back to my side of the mat. Oh, he's trapped! <laughs> to get back to my side of the mattress and the bedroom beyond me, behind me. On his they way- still have to move the box spring? Oh, this is a disaster. I know. On his way across, he stopped and felt speculatively at his jaw, his boots sunk deep in woodland floral cotton. He said, fuck it again, and I remember not being clear about what he was referring to. Then my father turned and started unsteadily back the way he had come across the mattress, one hand against the wall for support. He instructed me to wait right there in the hallway for one moment while he darted into the kitchen at the other end of the hall on a very brief errand. His steadying hand left four faint smeared prints on the wall's white paint. My parents' bed's box spring, though also king-size and heavy, had just below its synthetic covering a wooden frame that gave the box spring structural integrity, and it didn't flop or alter its shape. And after another bit of difficulty for my father, who was too thick through the middle, even with the professional girdle beneath his glad costume, after another bit of difficulty for my father squeezing with his end of the box spring through the bedroom doorway, we were able to get it into the hall and lean it vertically at something just over 70 degrees against the wall, where it stayed upright with no problem. It's a long hallway if you've got both a box spring and a mattress uh, yeah. leaning against the wall. Yeah. That's the way she wants doing, Jim, my father said, <laughs> clapping me on the back in exactly the ebullient way that had prompted me to have my mother buy an elastic athletic cranial strap for my glasses. Ebullient. I had told my mother I needed the strap for tennis purposes and she had not asked any questions. My father's hand was still on my back as we returned to the master bedroom. Right then, my father said, his mood was now elevated. There was a brief second of confusion at the doorway as each of us tried to step back to let the other through first. There was now nothing but the suspect frame left where the bed had been. There was something exoskeletal and frail looking about the bed frame, a plain low-ratio rectangle of black steel. At each corner of the rectangle was a caster. The caster's wheels had sunk into the pile carpet under the weight of the bed, and my fa- parents and were and my parents and were almost completely submerged in the carpet's fibers. Each of the frame sides had a narrow steel shelf welded at 90 degrees to its interior's base, so that a single rectangular narrow shelf perpendicular to the frame's rectangle ran all along the frame's interior. The shelf was obviously there to support the bed's occupants and king-size box spring and mattress. My father seemed frozen in place. I cannot remember what my mother was doing. There seemed to be a long, silent interval of my father looking closely at the exposed frame. The interval had the silence and stillness of dusty rooms immersed in sunlight. I briefly imagined every piece of furniture in the bedroom covered with sheets, and the room unoccupied for years as the sun rose and crossed and fell outside the window, the room's daylight becoming staler and staler. I could hear two power lawnmowers of slightly different pitch from somewhere down our subdivision street. The direct light through the master bedroom's window swam with rotating columns of raised dust. I remember, it seemed, the ideal moment for a sneeze. (laughs) Dust lay thick on the frame and even hung from the frame's interior support shelf in little gray beards. It was impossible to see any bolts anywhere on the frame. My father blotted sweat and wet makeup from his forehead with the back of his sleeve, which was now dark orange with makeup. Jesus, will you look at that mess, he said. He looked at my mother. Jesus. The carpeting in my parents' bedroom was deep pile and a darker blue than the pale blue of the rest of the bedroom's color scheme. I remember the carpet as more a royal blue with a saturation level somewhere between moderate and strong. 
The rectangular expanse of royal blue carpet that had been hidden under the bed was itself carpeted with a thick layer of clotted dust. The rectangle of dust was gray-white and thick and unevenly layered, and the only evidence of the room's carpet below was a faint, sick, bluish cast to the dust layer. It looked as if dust had not drifted under the bed and settled on the carpet inside the frame, but rather had somehow taken root and grown upon it, (laughs) the way a mold will take root and gradually cover an expanse of soiled food. Mold. (laughs) The layer of dust itself looked a little like spoiled food, bad cottage cheese. It was nauseous. Some of the dust layers on even topography was caused by certain lost and litter-type objects that had found their way under the bed. A fly swatter, a roughly variety-shaped magazine some bottle tops, three wadded Kleenex, and what was probably a sock, and gotten covered and textured in dust. There was also a faint odor, sour and fungal, like the smell of an overused bath mat. Jesus, there's even a smell, my father said. He made a show of inhaling through his nose and screwing up his face. There's even a fucking smell. He blotted his forehead and felt his jaw and looked hard at my mother. His mood was no longer elevated. My father's mood surrounded him like a field and affected any room he occupied, like an odor or a certain cast to the light. When was the last time this got cleaned under here? My father asked my mother. My mother didn't say anything. She looked at my father as he moved the steel frame around a little with his boot, which raised even more dust into the window sunlight. Well, this is a good opportunity to clean it. Right. The bed frame seemed very lightweight, moving back and forth noiselessly on his caster's submerged wheels. My father often moved lightweight objects absently around with his foot rather the way other men doodle or examine their cuticles. Rugs, magazines, telephone and electrical cords, his own removed shoe. It was one of my father's ways of musing or gathering his thoughts or trying to control his mood. Under what presidential administration was this room last deep cleaned? I'm standing here prompted to fucking muse out loud, my father said. I looked at my mother to see whether she was going to say anything in reply. I said to my father, you know, since we're discussing squeaking beds, my bed squeaks too. My father was trying to squat down to see whether he could locate any bolts on the frame, saying something to himself under his breath. He put his hands on the frame for balance and almost fell forward when the frame rolled under his weight. But I don't think I even really noticed it until we began to discuss it, I said. I looked at my mother. I don't think it bothers me, I said. Actually, I think I kind of like it. I think I've gradually gotten so used to it that it's almost become comforting at this juncture, I said. My mother looked at me. I'm not complaining about it, I said. The discussion just made me think of it. Oh, we hear your bed. Don't you worry, my father said. (laughs) He was still trying to squat, which drew his corset and the hem of his tunic up and allowed the top of his bottom's crack to appear above the waist of his white pants. He shifted slightly to point up at the master bedroom ceiling. You so much as turn over in bed up there, we hear it down here. He took one steel side of the rectangle and shook the frame vigorously, sending up a shroud of dust. The bed frame seemed to weigh next to nothing under his hands. My mother made a mustache of her finger to hold back a sneeze. He shook the frame again. But it doesn't aggravate us the way this rodential son of a whore right here does. (laughs) I remarked that I didn't think I'd ever once heard their bed squeak before from upstairs. My father twisted his head around to try to look up at me as I stood there behind him. But I'd said I definitely heard and could confirm the presence of a squeak when he'd pressed on the mattress and could verify that the squeak was no one's imagination. My father held a hand up to signal me to please stop talking. He remained in a squat, rocking slightly on the balls of his feet, using the rolling frame to keep his balance. The flesh of the top of his bottom and crack area protruded over the waist of his pants. There were also deep red folds in the back of his neck, below the blunt cut of the wig, because he was looking up and over at my mother, who was resting her tailbone on the sill of the window, still holding her shallow ashtray. Maybe you'd like to go get the vacuum, he said. My mother put the ashtray down on the sill and exited the master bedroom, passing between me and the dresser piled with bedding. If you can, if you can remember where it is, my father <laughs> called after her. I could hear my mother trying to get past the king-size mattress sagging diagonally across the hall. My father was rocking more violently on the balls of his feet, and now the rocking had the sort of rolling side-to-side quality of a ship in high seas. He came very close to losing his balance as he leaned to his right to get a handkerchief from his hip pocket and began using it to reach out and flick dust off something at one corner of the bed frame. After a moment, he pointed down next to a caster. Bolt, he said, pointing at the side of a caster. Right, there's a bolt. 
I leaned in over him. Drops of my father's perspiration made small dark coins in the dust of the frame. There was nothing but smooth, lightweight black steel surface where he was pointing, but just to the left of it where, <laughs> where he was pointing, I can see what might have been a bolt, a little stalactite of clotted dust hanging from some slight protrusion. My father's hands were broad and his fingers blunt. Another possible bolt lay several inches to the right of where he pointed. His finger trembled badly, and I believe the trembling might have been from the muscular strain on his bad knees, trying to hold so much new weight in a squat for an extended period. Uh, or, uh, like two, three more pages. All right. Well, this will be a long one. Uh, where am I? I heard the telephone ring twice. There had been an extended silence with my father pointing at neither protrusion and me trying to lean in over him. Uh, then, still squatting on the balls of his feet, my father placed both hands on the side of the frame and leaned out over the side into the rectangle of dust inside the frame and had what at first sounded like a bad coughing fit. His hunched back and rising bottom kept me from watching him. I remember deciding that the reason the frame was not rolling under his hand's pressure was that my father had so much of his weight on it and that maybe my father's nervous system's response to heavy dust was a cough signal instead of a sneeze signal. It was the wet sound of material hitting the dust inside the rectangle, rectangle, plus the rising odor that signified to me that rather than coughing, my father had been taken ill. The spasms involved made his back rise and fall and his bottom tremble under his white commercial slacks. It was not too uncommon for my father to be taken ill shortly after coming home from work to relax, but now he seemed to have been taken really ill. To give him some privacy, I went around the frame to the side of the frame closest to the window where there was direct light and less odor and examined another of the frame's casters. My father was whispering to himself in brief expletive phrases between the spasms of his illness. I squatted easily and rubbed dust from a small area of the frame and wiped the dust on the carpet by my feet. There was a small carriage head bolt on either side of the plating that attached the caster to the bed frame. I knelt and felt one of the bolts. Its round, smooth head made it impossible either to tighten or to loosen. Putting my cheek to the carpet and examining the bottom of the little horizontal shelf welded to the frame side, I observed that the bolt seemed threaded tightly and completely through its hole, and I decided it was doubtful that any of the caster's plating's bolts were producing the sounds that reminded my father of rodents. Just at this time, I remember there was a loud cracking sound, and my area of the frame jumped violently as my father's illness caused him to faint, and he lost his balance and pitched forward and lay prone and asleep over his side of the bed frame, which, as I rolled away from the frame and rose to my knees, I saw was either broken or very badly bent. My father lay face down in the mixture of the rectangle's thick dust and the material he'd brought up from his upset stomach. The dust his collapse raised was very thick, and as the new dust rose and spread, it attenuated the master bedroom's daylight as decisively as if a cloud had moved over the sun in the window. My father's professional wig had detached and lay scalp up in the mixture of dust and stomach material. The stomach material appeared to be mostly gastric blood until I recalled the tomato juice my father had been (laughs) drinking. He lay face down with his bottom high in the air over the side of the bed frame, which his weight had broken in half. This was how I accounted for the loud cracking sound. I stood out of the way of the dust and the window's dusty light, feeling along the line of my jaw and examining my prone father from a distance. I remember that his breathing was regular and wet and that the dust mixture bubbled somewhat. It was then that it occurred to me that when I'd been supporting the bed's raised mattress with my chest and face preparatory to its removal from the room, the dihedral triangle I'd imagined the mattress forming with the box spring in my body had not in fact even been a closed figure. The box spring in the floor I had stood on did not constitute a continuous plane. (laughs) Then I could hear my mother trying to get the heavy canister vacuum cleaner past the angled Simmons beauty rest in the hall, and I went to help her. My father's legs were stretched out across the clean blue carpet between his side of the frame and my mother's white dresser. His feet's boots were at a pigeon-toed angle, and his bottom's crack all the way down to the anus itself was now visible because the fourth of his fall had pulled his white slacks down even further. I stepped carefully between his legs. Excuse me, I said. I was able to help my mother by telling her to detach the vacuum cleaner's attachments and hand them one at a time to me over the width of the slumped mattress where I held them. The vacuum cleaner was manufactured by Regina, and its canister, which contained the engine, bag, and evacuating fan, was very heavy. 
I reassembled the vacuum and held it while my mother made her way back across the mattress, then handled the vacuum cleaner ba- handed the vacuum cleaner back to her, flattening myself against the wall to let her pass by on her way into the master bedroom. Thanks, my mother said as she passed. I stood there by the slumped mattress for several moments of a silence so complete that I could hear the street's lawnmowers all the way out in the hall, then heard the sound of my mother pulling out the vacuum cleaner's retractable cord and plugging it into the same bedside outlet the steel reading lamps were attached to. I made my way over the angled mattress and quickly down the hall, made a sharp right at the entrance to the kitchen, crossed the foyer to the uh, staircase, and ran up to my room, taking several stairs at a time, hurrying to get some distance between myself and the vacuum cleaner because the sound of vacuuming has always frightened me in the same irrational way it seemed a bed squeak frightened my father. I ran upstairs and pivoted left at the upstairs landing and went into my room. In my room was my bed. It was narrow, a twin bed with a headboard of wood and frame and slats of wood. Uh, I didn't know where it had come from originally. The frame held the narrow box spring and mattress much higher off the floor than my parents' bed. It was an old-fashioned bed, so high off the floor that you had to put one knee up on the mattress and clamber up into it or else jump. This is what I did. For the first time since I had become taller than my parents, I took several running strides in from the doorway, past my shelves' collection of prisms and lenses and tennis trophies, and my scale model Magneto. Magneto? What's a Magneto? Uh, Magneto from X-Men, It's not capitalized. I'll look it up. Okay. Uh, past my bookcase. <laughs> I could really use a footnote. I could really use an endnote here, David. <laughs> uh, past my bookcase, the walls still posters from Powell's Peeping Tom and the closet door and my bedside's high-intensity standing lamp and jumped, doing a full swan dive up onto my bed. I landed with my weight on my chest, with my arms and legs out from my body on the indigo comforter on my bed, squashing my tie and bending my glasses temples slightly. I was trying to make my bed produce a loud squeak, which in the case of my bed I knew was caused by any lateral friction between the wooden slats and the frame's interior's shelf-like slat support. Oh, but in the course of the leap and the dive, my overlong arm hit the heavy iron pole of the high-intensity standing lamp that stood next to the bed. The lamp teetered violently and began to fall over sideways away from the bed. It fell with a kind of majestic slowness, resembling a felled tree. As the lamp fell... Its heavy iron pole struck the brass knob on the door to my closet, shearing the knob off completely. The round knob and half its interior hex bolt fell off and hit my room's wooden floor with a loud noise and then began to roll in a remarkable way, the sheared end of the hex bolt stationary and the round knob rolling on its circumference, circling it in a spherical orbit, describing two perfectly circular motions on two distinct axes, a non-Euclidean figure on a planar surface, i.e. a cycloid on a sphere. And here there's a diagram, which uh, I maybe is useful to you. I see it, yes. Okay, sure. The closest conventional analog I could derive for this figure was a cycloid, a cycloid L'Hopital's solution to Bernoulli's famous uh, brachistochrone problem. The curve traced by a fixed point on the circumference of a circle rolling along a continuous plane. But since here, on the bedroom's floor, a circle was rolling around what was itself the circumference of a circle, the cycloid's standard parametric equations were no longer a posit. Those equations' trigonometric expressions here becoming themselves first-order differential equations. Wow. Uh, because of the lack of resistance or friction along s- against the bare floor, the knob rolled this way for a long time as I watched over the edge of the comforter and mattress, holding my glasses in place, completely distracted from the minor D shriek of the vacuum below. It occurred to me that the movement of the amputated knob perfectly schematized what it would look like for someone to try to turn somersaults with one hand nailed to the floor. This was how I first became interested in the possibilities of annulation. Okay. <laughs> uh, I guess here is where I would say, "Cool story, bro." Yes. What do, What do we think? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to, what to make of that. Uh, kind of, yes. Kind of a a perfect sad John Cheever scene there. Yeah. You know, um, the modern man felled, felled, felled into the the dusty, vomitous ground of his bedroom while his silent wife silently vacuums around him. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a quite a tableau. Yeah. While his son, uh, 
you know, in, invents the like science that makes him rich. Yes. Annulate was okay because he made because he ends up making an annulator yes. and that is like a military. What the fuck is an annulator? Okay, you might need. I, Let's look this up. I have a thought. I thought annulation. By the way, was... I had to look this up. I uh, for for uh, the guy's name is not Charles Fortier. It's just Charles Fort. Charles of Fort. the Fortian times. All right, um, annulation. Annulation. I thought it was a a means of like energy production. Uh. And you. No. Annulation. All okay, right. it's a chemical reaction in which a new ring is constructed on a molecule. Okay. Um, and this is like uh, I'll I'll look it up in the uh context of Infinite Jest. Um, all right. Well, this is wildly. Complicated. If you like, if you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. <laughs> um, uh, f- it's a cycle: fusion to waste to regeneration to more fusion. Michael Pemulus explains the process on page five sixty seven to five seventy four. All right. Well, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out later. Someone on Reddit was like, I noticed that David Foster Wallace brings up annulation a lot. I was wondering if someone could explain it to me, not necessarily in the context of the book, but just as a concept in general. And someone responded and said, just imagine someone doing somersaults with one hand nailed to the floor. Ah, <laughs> uh, Reddit. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think the, the purpose that it serves within the novel mm-hmm. is that it is something that is both complex and, uh, it's chemical, it's scientific, it's lucrative, and if you think about it too hard, it, it it's it's a it's a symbol almost almost, right? For also, something sort of like unknowable and mysterious. Also rings. Also what? Rings. Rings, yeah. Um, which is interesting because uh as you said, the di- uh annulation is a different thing from annular. Yes. Which as we talked about last week, we are just getting to the center point of the annular structure of the book, mm-hmm. and then he pivots Immediately to talking about annulation. Is annual as in like yearly? Is, yeah, I is mean, that well, the it's same like all about like cycles. Yeah. Annual. For yeah. everything. Turn, turn, turn. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what, what else to um, <laughs> to say on the, this one. Other than, uh, I don't know, cycles of trauma in, in their, their family. I mean, yeah, there you go. We've got guy with a alcoholic dad and he then becomes an alcoholic. And at this point in the book, we have determined that Hal has sw- switched his sauce and he's he's addicted to that loud. He is addicted that to loun- loud. That loud. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Ugh. Yes. You uh, got Don Gately, same thing. Uh, alcoholic if, mother. Um, if only Hal would realize that mi- mids are the real loud. Uh, micro micro do how how just needs some uh, delta eight THC, THC yes. uh to get through his I'm just you know a little pot sounds fine for for tennis players it, it, uh isn't THC supposed to be anti-inflammatory yeah sure and tennis is very inflammatory uh it's just the secret it's the secrecy that's the problem I um my my mom has uh, a little bit of arthritis and she's having difficulty finding um you know a, a consistent treatment for it and I suggested she should try a uh, topical THC uh like cream or something sure, which uh, is very very legal in, in, in the California. state she lives yeah uh as just uh you know a, a, a topical anti-inflammatory thing and she and she absolutely refused saying that she quote didn't want to get high doesn't she doesn't want to get stoned and i was i was like that's not how thc topical topical thc, THC works and she, she's like no will not even consider I, I i cannot use a drug-based cream and i'm like you know that all prescription <laughs> i'm sorry i can't get I, into it i, I, I will like crack i funny. want to crack your mom because i think honestly I honestly think ingesting two milligrams of THC would do would her, do her a world of difference. Yeah. And she she grew up on mids. She's fr- she's a child of the sixties. She is. She went to like Rolling Stones concert. Yes. She's not new. She's not new. Uh, it's the it's just the insane hydroponic uh like yes. uh panic attack causing weed that our generation has is probably uh no. I mean I need I need to get my my mom on pot as well. Mid- Everyone needs to just fucking relax. Everybody, everybody does need to re- to relax. Everyone needs <laughs> one, to take a load one off. One to two drinks. <laughs> one to two drinks. Yes, and then and then smoke some pot. Um, that might that uh, might be my new uh, my new uh, <laughs> schedule, schedule of uh, 
<laughs> of ingestion now. Honestly, having more than two drinks causes me nothing but trouble and anxiety. Let's be real. Um, I like that he is a glad spo- spokesman, and, and glad is one of the years, right? Year of glad. It's the uh, last. It's the last year of subsidized time. Uh huh. So again, there annular. has to be a uh, connection there. It's the. Uh, may, I don't know if the, if this is a conversation worth getting into. It's the idea of like breaking <laughs> familial trauma. But there, there is something to that. There's, there's something I, you know, I know it, it gets TikTokified, uh, and and people being like, well, actually, you know, not going to Thanksgiving is, uh, is self care yes. and breaking breaking familial trauma. It's when when I, you know, insist on a vegetarian dish at, at uh, thanks when I insist on tofurkey, I'm breaking familial familial trauma i like i get that it's become like identity identity commodified uh, yeah. to within an inch of its life but there is something there and i don't know I, th- I think about this in just terms of parenting period of like every every generation exists basically in opposition to the generation before it but then you have this these negative things like addiction mm-hmm. that it's you're not existing in, in opposition you are doing the exact same thing dear old dad did Yes. I don't know. It's I, I think it's interesting that he's exploring this. I'm not sure what else to say, but it's just something on my mind, especially as we get into the holidays, having those difficult conversations with your family. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not that I have any difficult conversations. I don't have difficult conversations with my family. Once I stopped bothering my parents about thinking that the cops were so great, we're, we can exist in harmony. Thank you, BPD. Thank you, BPD. Yeah, uh, here here's a... <laughs> Um, How did, did you did you tweet that? Mm-hmm. Okay, that was you. It's taken yeah. on a life of its own. Um, that was my neighbor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know. There's not really much more to say about about it. I mean, he's clearly explored it already a lot in the book and has set up a lot of the uh, you know the generational rhymes of the Incandenza family. Although we're interestingly the current generation has this like brood of kids but uh jo is an only child only child we've only seen an only child possibly yeah so i mean that you know just pointing out differences i don't know it it seems like more the three brothers is a way to like fragment different personalities paths responses onto Mm -hmm. three different people but we haven't heard about Oren in, in a long ways. time. Yeah, I mean, or- Oren is uh, he he got he got mom mom trauma, mm-hmm. mommy trauma, mommy trauma. Um, yeah, we haven't we haven't heard of from Oren in a while, and uh, I don't I don't think we're going to <laughs> not, not well, for a while. He, he doesn't come back for a bit. Yeah, I'm I mean, sorry. theoretically, they need to, they need to resolve uh, at some point the conversation or the meeting between Steeply and uh, Oren. Although maybe they just never get to that. Oh, they do. Okay, great. Yes, they do. I mean, it is funny to th- to be you know halfway through this thousand page book where like on in the, within the first hundred pages it is basically set up like these two characters will inter- will like are supposed to meet each other at some yes. point, and now like five hundred pages later, I'm like, I mean, they could just not meet. <laughs> I'm not like really expecting that. Right. Exactly. Anything yeah. to happen? Yeah. No, that's that that is valid. <laughs> I mean, I. And it's not even to say that it would be like, um, you know, satisfying, you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, that that uh, that old joke that I like to say. That's what comedy is: uh, it's hearing something that you've heard before. <laughs> I, have I ever told you that? No, I don't think so. That's from an old MC Chris sketch. That's just like one of those things that uh, skit on one of his albums. That's always mm-hmm. stayed with me, and I think it's a, it, it, uh, intended to be a joke about like improv comedy. Okay, and like one of the hallmarks of improv comedy is, of course, the callback, where you it, it's basically a, a comedic trick. You know how like Jenna goes to the school dramatic tricks. The comedic trick is, of course, that if you're an improviser and you say something in the first five or yeah. 10 minutes of the show. Yes. And then in the last five or 10 minutes, you s- reference that thing again. Yes. Everybody's, everybody in the audience claps like seals because as MC Chris says, that's what comedy is. Hearing something <laughs> that you've heard before. Wait, that's amazing. You know, because it's like the callback, the reference to something that happened earlier. I love that. Uh, it's, uh, even if you barely have a joke around it, if you just mention a thing that the audience has heard before, it always works. Yeah, it ki- it's going to kill. Yeah. This reminds me of my, um, 
this is not quite the same thing, but it's sort of a, a counterpoint. I just I just remembered because my friend Dana uh, texted our college group chat. Um, when I first graduated from college, I uh, very nice. They they asked me to uh, do to like snap live snap like an alumni event, and I was like sure. Uh, and that turned into me being appointed the official social media volunteer of the class of 2012. <laughs> and ever since, I have been listed in every single like email communication from our alumni class oh, as the social media volunteer. It is absolutely mortifying. I have done, I have not done shit for them since live snapping that thing. And then recently, another email came through about our 10 year reunion, and my friend Dana screenshotted it, like highlighted it, and sent it to the group chat, uh, like you know, roasting me. And my other friend said, wow, uh, you open read, highlighted screenshot and sent that all in one minute. And Data said, comedy lives in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Co- comedy is when you, comedy lives in the moment and comedy is when, when you've heard something, you've heard heard something that, that you've heard, heard before. before. Yeah. There's nothing like, oh, the, the, uh, the cool dopamine rush of a, of a callback. Come yes. On. Ooh, baby. I mean, it often is very funny. <laughs> but just reducing it to that. What, what, is, we, what, what, is co- what is your favorite kind of comedy? Uh, I think one of my favorite uh, comedic tropes is frustrated authority figure. Okay. That's why uh, John Cleese is always my favorite Monty Python because he always plays the uh, the like in- interviewer Hamper, who's... Hampered boss. Yeah, interviewer who is like interviewing somebody who's very silly. Mm-hmm. Um. I think my favorite. Wait, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If you, had I, I don't think I, I had more. Well, I, I was just just to close the circle on the yeah. it's comedy. Something that you heard before. Close the ring. Close the ring. Uh, is that you know if you've I guess that's Chekhov's uh, character meeting. You know, if so, you've set off something set up that these two characters are going to meet in the first hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, by page nine hundred and ninety, uh, they actually meet. Chekhov's and then you're like, Yeah, they met. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! We y'all have been careening toward each other. I mean, I guess the obvious way to do it would just be to print a chapter that is like the the interview as published in the magazine between uh oh yeah is that what happens? Well, there's already been a footnote that um is the interview between them. Do, do you remember? Oh, that? I do remember that. He but was it's like remarking an on the them. her copper ear. It's a transcript. It's not. Oh, yeah. It's not the published piece. Uh-huh. Um, no, it'll. I promise it'll end in a satisfying way. Okay. The ring will close. The ring will get returned to Mordor. Yes. My favorite comedy trope is when a guy wears a funny outfit and has a funny voice. <laughs> <laughs> like Austin Powers. Yes, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked. I've looked in my heart, and I, I like all the other stuff. I can like you, the cerebral stuff. Can you think of any other examples of a guy who wears a funny, funny outfit, outfit and has, has a funny, funny voice? voice. Pee Wee Herman. Uh, Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean. Um. I mean, anything in like a in a cartoon realm is is good. Yeah, that's good. I would say honestly, like SpongeBob SquarePants because his pants does, are square. That's that kind of funny. That is a funny outfit, and he has a very funny he voice. He has that little tie. Yeah. in the collar. Yeah, honestly, SpongeBob SquarePants. That's what I. That's what I. No, he doesn't wear. He only wears glasses sometimes. I was like, does young James and Condenza look like SpongeBob SquarePants? But he doesn't wear a bow tie. He has just a regular tie, right? I think he just has a regular tie. Yeah. And he doesn't. He only wears glasses sometimes. Draw SpongeBob SquarePants from memory would be a funny like um, trivia like <laughs> challenge. If I was doing bar trivia. It was just like draw SpongeBob. This will be a uh, subjective bar trivia. Draw SpongeBob SquarePants from memory, and whoever has the best, I will award points. I to. love the idea of subjective bar trivia, where it's like open ended <laughs> essay questions. <laughs> uh, what do you call free response questions yeah, for yeah. the AP exam? Describe your favorite smell. What's your, what's your favorite smell? Um, oh God, this is a good one. I mean, fresh coffee is pretty great. <laughs> like walking into a mm. a bakery, like a, a a real bakery where you have like fresh coffee, croissant, uh, like like fresh baked goods, a nice buttery, maybe like butter, cinnamon, sugar, like the full oh. smell of yeah. like a real bakery. Like when I walk past that French bakery, yes, on fucking Court Street, Le French down there, and it just like reeks. Of buttered croissants, like the most pa- like overpowering feeling of yeah. buttered croissants. That's but a add a little like coffee to that. I mean, that it's, that's hard to beat. Yeah, yeah, that plus coffee. That that sounds good. But that's the point of the the bar subjective bar trivia is that you have to describe it, and whoever has the best description, I've, of course, bar, t- it's almost like poetry. It's almost like a cre- creative writing bar contest. Uh, I think I the way I would do it is have one subjective round. Okay, where it's like it would be like four rounds, and three of them are like real trivia that you can answer. 
like I have an objectively true question to, and then the final round is like the create creative round where it'd be like four or five questions, and you draw on and write write poems and yeah. orate, maybe write a song or something. Uh, r- write a funny joke. Ooh, that's tough. And whoever has the funny funniest joke on paper. Yeah. Uh, if you have question, if you have suggestions for uh, subjective bar trivia questions. Uh, send them to uh, theinfinitecastpod at gmail.com. Yes, we would like to. Uh, I would like to uh, develop this concept further. Uh, all right. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.